This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. Welcome back, everyone. We're here virtually over the holidays to record another episode. I've been really excited to do this case. We've been sitting on it for a little bit, waiting for the right group to give it to. And I'm happy to invite Kate back to the show, but also she'll be discussing with Dan. And I think them as a duo, it's going to be a brilliant discussion. Uh, If you don't remember, Kate was on when we did floppy baby syndrome and had to have her come back and this time we're going to give her an adult case. So welcome guys. Thank you. Happy to be here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourselves, uh, who you are, where are you currently? Kate, you want to go first? Sure. I'm Kate, uh, currently in my home in Chicago. My holiday plans, we're going to go see my grandparents um, in a couple of days. Actually, no, it's tomorrow. We're going to see my grandparents tomorrow uh, for Christmas. My favorite lab on a BMP. Um, oh, yeah. What's your favorite lab on a BMP? I've never actually thought about it before. Um, my favorite lab on a BMP is potassium because I feel like, you know, either it's really high or it's really low and you kind of know what to do with that from there. <laughs> nice. Um, hey, everyone. I'm Daniel. I'm yeah in California. Holidays with my family as well in Orange County. Uh, holiday plans? Um, not sure yet. Maybe just staying at home and opening presents. My sister has her dog with her, so we need to also like, edu- educate him a little bit and not like <laughs> of opening the presents. Uh, favorite lab on BMP? That's a hard one. I wish you had said CMP. Oh, uh, I said Alkvoss. But <laughs> BMP, I, I, I'll say sodium. I, I just love the work of a hyponatremia. So I hope we don't have that today because I'm not fully <laughs> ready to, to approach that. But yeah, sodium, I think, is my favorite. <laughs> or chloride, because I feel like it's mildly useless for most people unless you're calculating an iron gap. But That's sodium, true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so much to dissect there. Uh, yeah. Dr. Abrams, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Um, nice to see everybody. I, I, I also am currently at home today, which is kind of nice. Um, part of the reason I'm really at home is is my holiday plans, at least my weekend plans have changed because I was just pulled to cover the floors because, oh, because no. somebody I work with has COVID. Oh, and yeah. uh, so, so I'm, I'm going in, I'm, I'll be in this weekend. I'm with Dan. I am with you. My favorite lab, actually, I'm kind of with you. My favorite lab is actually the chloride <laughs> because wow. I believe it's it, it it's the it's the uh, it's the iron of the uh, you know 21st century. We, we, <laughs> we don't know enough about it, but we're going to find out so much about it, and it's actually probably going to be more important than all the others. Wow! All right. Well, with that out of the way, everyone's introduced to you guys. Kate knows how this works. Dan's new to the show. They're going to do great together. I have no no worries about that. This is a a really interesting case, and I'm going to go out and say it. This is episode 13 for us now that this is the most difficult case we've thrown at our discussants yet. Mm. Thanks, Kevin. (laughs) But like I said, I've I've been saving this for for the right duo. So with that being said, we'll kick things off. So Aliquot 1, we have a 39 year old woman presented to the emergency room with palpitations and shortness of breath. Okay. So go ahead first. I was going to say, when you, when I hear palpitations and shortness of breath, immediately the first thing my mind jumps to is some sort of arrhythmia. Um, so like AFib, you can have sinus tack, you can have a lot of different arrhythmias. It's a whole list that we can go through. Um, other things that cause palpitations, Daniel. Yeah, for her, I think the, the way I'd approach this is I, I want to know if at least it's the first time she's had it. Um, does she have experience with palpitations or um, does she, has she had it before? And then the other thing I'd like to know is I feel like palpitations is a word that people use pretty like an umbrella term. And I'd like to know specifically what she means by palpitations, how she describes them. Is it skipping a beat? Is it actual palpitations? Is it feeling like her heart is jumping out of her chest? Um, so that's one thing I'd like to get more clarification on. The shortness of breath, I think for now, I'd like to think of them as two separate things because shortness of breath has an extremely broad differential. Um, um, but for, yeah, for now, I'd like to, to know how she describes palpitation and shortness of breath. I think we can talk about it separately as a system-based approach. Um, is it the lung? Is it like a central respiratory thing in her brain? Is it from her heart? 
Um, does she have a history of heart failure? So I think we need to like dissect a little bit more to get to the bottom of this. Fantastic initial approach guys. Mm -hmm. And Dan, I really like what you did, how you're, you're separating them and palpitation sticks out. And then you, you recognize that shortness of breath has a a really wide differential. And I think Kate started with it, but took it a, a step further by what might tie the two together. And she mentioned arrhythmias and specifically AFib. And I think that's a great thought too, but I think since we're just starting out and we only have a little bit of information to keep them separate is important because it doesn't let, let a, lead us down one road too, too soon with, and leave the other road behind. Anything you yeah. want to add Dr. Abrams? No, I just want to agree with, with everything you just said and, and, and go back and, and, and just like, like Dan said, palpitations is, is it really is a term that people, you know, use in a lot of different ways you know, some people feel like my heart is beating. I can feel my heart, my chest for some reason, for some people it's fast for some reason, for some people it's irregular. And, and, and as you say, I, I do think it's really important when you talk to somebody to parse out exactly what they, what they mean by that. Um, and actually in some ways you can say the same thing about shortness of breath, but, but, but specifically there, you know, particularly if we're going to sort of put these two together um, as, as, as was pointed out, the palpitations may may narrow things down a little bit because shortness of breath just is so big. Alcott too. She had a history of ductal carcinoma in situ. It was diagnosed in 2017. She was treated with bilateral mastectomies. The tumor was only three millimeters in size and there wasn't evidence of spread to the lymph nodes. She has had regular follow-up with an oncologist and no recurrence of disease. She has no other medical problems and doesn't take any medications. Maya first. Are we doing each each one goes first ones gets the hot seat? Um, it doesn't matter either way. So, for me, I think this is extremely helpful information. Um, the one thing I'd like to, I think everyone will jump to like, oh, heart problems, shortness of breath. Is it like her chemotherapy? Right? Is it like doxorubicin or something else? But I, I think um, that's like getting a little bit narrow too soon. But I think that's definitely something we need to to dissect. Is what was her chemotherapy? What was she on? Didn't um, wait, pause. It doesn't say she was treated with bilateral mastectomies alone. So, so no oh, chemo, so, no chemo, okay, no radiation. But I agree okay. with your thought that, you know, if she had had chemo radiation, we needed to learn what type of chemo and radiation she had, okay. because that can definitely cause heart problems and lead to palpitations and or shortness of breath. Um, yeah. Thanks for, thanks for adding that. Um, and then I, I think that the, I don't want to fall in the trap of like it being a red herring. Um, but I think definitely like malignancy has still to be on the, differential she if she's had dcis she's probably at higher risk of having it again or having another type of malignancy um but to keep the differential broad i think that's one thing to keep like malignancy being one of them um and then like dr abraham said the the tie between the palpitations and shortness of breath is helpful because i think we need to keep a cardiac etiology extremely high on the differential it's helpful that she's not on any medications because i think medications themselves when i think when i see palpitations that's something that definitely screams out to me is she on any sympathomimetic or anything like that, that can, you know, increase heart rate and, and cause palpitations. Um, but then keeping it broad, I think the, the, you know, I like to approach this as a system approach. So malignancy is one, I think pulmonary has to be another one. Is it a parenchymal problem? And then cardiac is, is, is obviously probably first on differential for now. I definitely agree with everything that Daniel just said. Something else I would like to kind of keep in mind too, we haven't really gotten her history or psychiatric history, for example. Um, Another thing that could definitely cause the sensation of palpitations and shortness of breath is like panic attacks or anxiety. And so I would like to know, has she ever, like, has she ever experienced any of that before? As well as, you know, what was happening when she started experiencing the palpitations and shortness of breath? Like what was going on? Hey, great job recognizing that. And common things being common, right? That's probably one of the more common uh, actual reasons patients might experience shortness of breath and palpitations. So I'm glad you mentioned that. And then Dan, just great job kind of layering this this history into your overall thinking process. I think you recognize the possibility that, you know, she has a history of malignancy and you mentioned, yes, she's at risk for having that same one again, if, and others. Uh, but it could also be a red herring in this case. I feel like when we hear of a recent history of malignancy, it kind of shifts our attention towards thinking about malignancy more. Sounds great. You guys are doing really well so far. I'm I'm, I'm excited to see the third aliquot. Thing I was just going to add was actually, I'm interested to see what her vitals are like, because it, 
even though she's not on any medications right now, if she does have a malignancy, she might be a relatively immunosuppressed compared to the general population. Um, and if that's the case, if she's febrile, if she's tachycardic, um, I think we need to keep in mind, like also an infectious etiology, specifically things that if she is relatively immune, and I use the words relatively just because she's probably not like full on immunosuppressed, like someone with like a low CD4 count from HIV or anything like that. But uh, if she's relatively immunosuppressed, we can keep, I think there's, there's things that in the community that sh she might be at higher risk for than the general population. So the other thing that, that I'd like to add is just an infectious umbrella, like putting the infectious umbrella for now. I would also like to add, just thinking about other things that can cause us in like a 39 year old, um, something to always consider is, you know, maybe she has a thyroid problem as well. So palpitation, shortness of breath, maybe something to do with her thyroid. It's always endocrinologic. All these, you watch enough of these, you watch it, you listen to enough of these, Dan, and you're going to, as you, you said, you just listen to, you just listen to one of these podcasts and, and endocrinologic causes are always, they somehow bubble to the top. I, I feel like if I learned one, if I can boil down med school in one test, it's a TSH. Yep. You always get a TSH and it's always on the differential. Yep. Thyroid's always on the differential. He's always, always on the differential. Amazing. <laughs> All right, aliquot three. So in the ER, the patient's pulse was 110 beats per minute. Her blood pressure was 146 over 105. She was saturating 89% on room air. So she was then placed on two liters of oxygen and her oxygen saturation improved to 98%. Her heart and lung exam was normal. She had a palpable liver edge about three centimeters below the right costal margin. There was no evidence of edema. You want, to, you want me to go or when you feel yeah, passionate? I'm, I'm thinking, I don't feel passionate either way. Um, I, can, I can give it a try. So just looking at her vital, she's tachycardic, her blood pressure, her, her systolic is a little bit elevated, but I think the thing that, that, that stands out is definitely her diastolic blood pressure, 105. Um, she is hypoxic, 89%. I'm wondering, the, the one thing I'd like to know is, is that her baseline, does she have a history of, you know, maybe low, low oxygen in the past, is she a smoker or anything like that? So that's one thing I'd like to know. Um, it is reassuring that she did improve with, you know, two liters of oxygen. So she didn't need, you know, BiPAP or anything severe like that, which tells me that for now, at least it's not like severe hypoxia. Reassuring that her heart is, is heart exam is, is normal. I, you know, one thing I would have thought if Kate and I, I think Kate brought up like maybe the idea of AFib. Again, it doesn't rule out AFib because it can be like paroxysmal. She can be going in and out of it. But at least she doesn't have like, you know, the, the classic thing, like irregularly irregular heartbeat that we would definitely think about um, AFib for that. Reassured by the lung exam, I think if it was some sort of like consolidation, we would have definitely heard decreased breath sounds on one side. It's good that she doesn't have a pleural effusion, at least for now. Maybe she has a small one that, that we're not hearing on exam. Um, but the one thing actually that, that I'd like to know, just, you know, being a medical student and things that like you like to think of the zebras of the zebras, is I'd like to know her pregnancy history. Um, cause one thing, you know, 39 year old female, when was she last pregnant? Could it be like a cardiomyopathy that, you know, secondary to, to like a postpartum cardiomyopathy or perimpartum cardiomyopathy, maybe not extremely likely because, you know, maybe she'd have edema, but if it's only, you know, left ventricle, it could be, could, could be causing like shortness of breath, but then we'd expect crackles on exam. As I was gonna say, the only uh, long exam was normal, which I think right. is less likely, but I think it's something we should at least keep in the back of our mind given given her her age at least so she's probably like at a age where she can she had a child recently or such things some brilliant some brilliant points dan i'm just going to ask dr abrams if he is able to fill in any of that history that uh dan was wondering i don't I think, think she was a smoker fairness, she 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 had never had a child she had no children she was she had never been pregnant i don't think i'm wondering if we have a temperature for her is that later like is that the, the cool part that we're saving for later <laughs> no she was afebrile Okay, Febra. That's, that's that's reassuring. And sorry to cut you off, Kate. You can. No, I mean, I was just gonna say I pretty much agree with everything Daniel said. I mean, the fact that she's afebrile, like you said, reassuring. So I feel like infection, an infectious etiology is an acute infectious etiology is a little bit lower down on my list of things that could be causing this. Interesting that her lung exam is normal, but her O2 sat was eighty nine. That's weird. I don't know what to do with that yet, but that's I odd. I'm curious. I'm not, we, we, you might have said that and I completely missed it. Do we know how long the symptoms have been going on for? Are we more like in an acute phase, a subacute phase? Is it chronic? Uh, this was acute, acute okay. over a day. Okay. Oh, wow. Over a day. They, okay. she'd had a, she'd had, she'd had a day of symptoms. If, okay. if I remember right. 
Okay. I, 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 you know, I almost have to go back to the beginning when, when, when Kevin asked what everybody's favorite part of the BNP was, because I, I almost like, what's your favorite part of the vital signs? Ooh, hmm. I know mine, but I'm going to let you guys go first. Uh, for me, I think it's the heart rate. I, I just think that it's very helpful in thinking about compensation it gives nice like patterns of like, are they in shock? Or are they not in shock? Or are they, I don't know. It's yeah. The heart rate is pretty cool. I mean, the blood pressure I think is a classic one, but I like the heart rate. It's easy to measure. You don't need any instruments. It's cool. I like similar to, I think why I like potassium. I think I like the O2 stat just cause you kind of know if it's like what to do with it, depending on what number you see. So it's like, I feel like fairly straightforward. I like that. And I, I'm with Dan on a heart rate and I just love it. Cause you can't fake it no matter what, like if, if someone's tachycardic, they're tachycardic and there's, there's, we have to find out why. Of course I might say it's the one that's actually has been missing the whole time from this one, which is the respiratory rate. First of all, because it really is, nobody really checks it. Right. So, <laughs> so you know, it's, it's one of those things that it, it always says 16 or 12 or whatever it is. But I, I actually would say that, a well-taken respiratory rate, again, which particularly in a case like this, right? Mm-hmm. And a well-taken respiratory rate may be something that's incredibly useful. Yeah, and, and 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 I got to tell you that I come from a time before oximeters were, you know, were, were ubiquitous. And, and the only way you really get that, that, you know, that, 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 that saturation was to do a blood gas on somebody and people hated that. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's kind of almost a new vital sign, but, but we've used it to replace the respiratory rate. Otherwise I would say heart rate. I, I, I would say that heart rate is heart rate is certainly, uh, you know, underappreciated. And so on that note, do we have a respiratory rate? I was just going to ask, do we have a respiratory rate? <laughs> no, we don't. We don't. Oh, no. um, so that'll just, Keep to the mystique of this presentation. I, I, so uh, it's sixteen. I, it's sixteen then. <laughs> yeah, especially <laughs> twelve. I, I do want to go back and maybe correct myself because I have to reach back in my own memory. When I said, when you said time course, the, the shortness of breath was going on longer. The palpitations were new, so she had okay. no, she'd, she'd been feeling shorter breath at least over I think a couple of days, and it, and that was the palpitations that really sort of brought her in. Okay, so the palpitations is like on the order of a day. Yeah. a breath for like about a week. A couple days. Okay. I, I'd love, appreciate that you said that because I think with these case presentations presented in a certain way that the case has already happened, we've formatted it. And I think this uh, allows it to be a little more real. Like who says if Dan was to go in a room and talk with this patient that he wouldn't get a different story than I would. So I think this keeps true to how this case might have actually presented. Hey, Kevin, you're much smarter on. than I am. So, so I think it's good <laughs> that you took the <this> story. <laughs> Before we move on, I was wondering how this aliquot of information, particularly the physical exam, either helps narrow down the systems-based approach you first mentioned or kind of leads you down one path versus the other. Okay. So just to recap what we've said so far, Daniel, we've said palm for like for pre like this aliquot. We were saying thinking palm, it's like, I don't know, like inch sprinkle or something. And no. Uh, like a cardiac etiology and infectious etiology. What am I missing? That it? That always yeah. Okay. So I think, like I said earlier, I feel like infectious is lower. If she's afebrile, I mean, if this is very acute, I feel like if she was had an infection, she would look sicker slash, like you said, maybe like if there's some sort of like consolidation in her lung, we would hear that on lung exam. Or tachycardia could still like, it could still be endo. And still be a thyroid problem. Her heart and lung exams being normal makes me think that this is less likely to be a cardiac etiology. But again, like you said, AFib can be paroxysmal. Um, so maybe she's just not an AFib now. It's hard to say. And palm, again, her O2 set was 89. It could still be palm. I don't know. I can't commit to anything yet. Yeah, the, the thing that I find extremely helpful in, in these vitamins, assuming that the respiratory rate is, is normal, is actually the O2 set. Um, I think the heart rate and the blood pressure, I mean, they're high, um, at least what this tells me right now is she's not septic. That's pretty much the only thing it tells me. Um, but I think that 89% is definitely not normal. And and I think it can at least maybe not rule out, but put things that lower in the pressure. I think a thyroid etiology right now with an 89% on room air, less likely 89% means she's not oxygenating as normal. The thyroid shouldn't really, really affect that as much, especially if it's acute. 
Um, I wouldn't want to rule out, like I said, TSH is like the great mimicker. So, so keep it down, but not, not rule out for now. Um, I agree with Kate, maybe the infectious etiology, again, it's not because she's not febrile that it's not infectious, maybe a little bit lower for now. The one thing is given the time course, um, I wouldn't include, but I'm assuming she was in Chicago and, you know, blasto and histo and, and, and all these fungal infections should always be considered, especially with someone like that. But again, 89%, maybe it's an infection, but the heart rate, I mean, the, excuse me, the temperature really doesn't help the, the infectious cause. So yeah, for now I, I'd keep it, I'd keep it like that. Um, thyroid lower infection lower. I guess I got to ask you guys a question because we focus so much on the top of this aliquot and, and, and we haven't spent much time on the bottom of the aliquot and, and does, is there anything there that, that, that either of you guys want to comment on? I think the fact that the edema, I think we always forget that edema is really like part of the cardiac exam and, and the cardiac exam being normal, the edema really for now is not very helpful to me just because if, if it's a new acute thing, we can assume that let's say, let's say it is a cardiac etiology and the left ventricle is not pumping as well. It really, the edema shouldn't tell you anything. The, really what edema tells us if it's cardiac, it's there's something wrong with the right, right side. The other things just to like, think about um broadly is the other organs what can cause edema is, it, is she losing protein so does she have like a protein losing enteropathy and then um the liver is the other one that can cause edema and, and the liver edge being normal so yeah edema for now that it's not no edema doesn't really tell me much to be honest dr Abrams, you can correct me if i'm wrong but the liver edge was palpable below the costal margin yes so so it was enlarged okay so if it's like enlarged i mean so you know an enlarged liver could be due to a number of things. But if we're thinking when we talk cardiac, like it could be due to the right heart failure, you get a large liver. Other something else that I thought of that we mentioned earlier is, you know, maybe this is some sort of toxin related. Like maybe she has some sort of exposure to something that I don't know caused her O2 set to be eighty nine percent. I like that thought. Um, yeah, has, has carbon monoxide in her house. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'd be curious to, to to see what her liver enzymes are because I, I think if she if the liver is palpable we're assuming it's acute for now at least doesn't mean it's acute but it could be like an acute on chronic thing but if she has like some mild hepatomegaly um that could actually account for the shortness of breath if there's like some diaphragmatic pressure from the liver that can um you know cause shortness of breath it, it would give you a normal lung exam because it's not really parenchymal or like plural and it's really just the, the the liver edge just pushing up on the on the diaphragm so yeah that could explain the shortness of breath i don't really know how it can explain the palpitations um, but again, if we're assuming we're, we're approaching these two things on, on two different avenues, the liver edge could maybe potentially account for some of the shortness of breath. I think we should go over some labs. I think that would help <laughs> you guys. Let's do it. We've talked about BMP a lot. Hers was normal. Her labs were significant for a calcium of 11.2. Her liver chemistry tests showed an AST of 148, an ALT of 143, and alkaline phosphatase of 627. A month ago, it was normal. Wow. Her D-dimer was elevated. And then a chest x-ray was negative for any acute cardiopulmonary process. Go first. I think it takes me longer to think about it than you. I, I can. We can do one line. Each. I, I'll, I can talk about the calcium first. I, I think hyper, this is, I mean, definitely she, she's hypercalcemic. I mean, yeah, 11.2. The, the thing that, that, screams out to me with her history of, of DCIS is does she have a malignancy? I mean, the, this is the, the first thing I would think about really. So yeah, 11.2 hypercalcemia, especially given the elk FOS is, you know, is breast cancer, mets to the bone, increased elk FOS with a high calcium. So that's one thing I'd like to, to account for. I, I think that we know, you know, the calcium is elevated. Everyone knows how to approach treating it, but then we have to think about like what it actually means. Um, the other thing I think with hypercalcemia that I think about is, is she on any medications? And I think we answered this question already. It's, it's definitely not, right? Because we, we have this piece of information already. Calcium is one of them. And then really the, the, the other one is, is there some PTH process going on? I'm talking about endocrinopathies and how everything is an endocrinopathy somehow. So I think that the next thing we, we, we should do is, is at least check a PTH, see if it's like PTH mediated or, or, or PTH independent. Yeah. So I think another thing to think about with the ALK-FOS is, like you said, could be related to malignancy, meds to bone, um, with, especially with that calcium. Other things, is, is it primarily liver? So something I would love to see, like to love to know is like, did we get a GGT to see if it's like actually like, she's got elevated liver enzymes? Like, 
is it liver? Is it bone? Like, where is that coming from? Also, how did this happen so quickly? It was normal a month ago. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know in the realm of. Yeah, that's pretty significant. Like, I feel like that's like very fast. I mean, like, you know, how did this happen? I love how you guys are both tying these things in together and Dan's drawing connections with her history of DCIS now elevated Alkfoss with the hypercalcemia. He's seeing how those link together. I did want to ask you in the previous aliquot, when we talked about the hepatomegaly on physical exam, you were wondering about the liver chemistry tests. Yeah. So when I see elevated liver enzymes, I just put it in, in, in bracket. So like, is it, is it obstructive etiology is one. Uh, specifically with the alphas, it definitely could be, again, we, we'd probably need a Billy Rubin to, to, to make yeah. sure of that. The other thing I, I really think about um, with elevated enzymes, I don't think they're elevated enough for that, but there's always like a exception, is hepatitis. That could definitely be acute, you know, maybe not hepatitis C, but hepatitis A, hepatitis B. Again, if it's A, we'd probably expect some GI also symptoms with that. But again, the, the, uh, the liver enzymes alone, I don't think explain anything Um because AST and ALT can be elevated for a multitude of reasons. But I think once you put them together with the calcium and the alkphos, um, it really, really, for me, screams malignancy, yeah. at least for now. I don't, I don't think it's the only thing, but that really screams malignancy. My personal feelings about the D-dimer, and, and Kate, feel free to jump in. I don't really like the D-dimer as a test. I think if it's negative, that really tells you a lot. I think it being solid. elevated <laughs> doesn't really say anything. Yeah, um, I agree with that. And, and I also, then, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was I was literally just going to agree with you that yeah, elevated calcium outcross and somebody with a history of cancer to me screams malignancy. Like that definitely moves it to the top of the list of things that are going on with her eventually. And, and then just just to be like um, you know to complete complete yeah thorough. Um, I mean the chest X-ray being negative. I mean that's helpful, but yeah, I mean. The, we're not really worried about pneumonia um, or a pleural effusion. That's really all it tells me. I mean, if we saw cardiomegaly and it's new, then we start thinking about maybe some cardiac causes. But I, I agree with Kate that for now, a cardiac cause um, and a parenchymal, lung parenchymal cause is it's very low on the differential. Yeah, much less likely to be. The, the next things I'd like to see just from seeing these labs is definitely I'd like to see a PTH just to approach the calcium and then just with, with the, with the liver, uh, test, I'd love to see a bilirubin just to see if, just, you know, and probably fractionated as well. Those are really the two things that, that I'm excited to see. Do we get to see those? Wait a second. <laughs> so I, I got to actually, maybe I'll ask Kevin this question, um, yeah. because I, I'm going back to the liver, to the, to the liver function tests. And I'm saying, well, what does it mean when I see mostly an increase in and I'll call them broadly sort of transaminases. What, what does that make me think? So, so the tr if, if, if it, this was all just a transaminitis with a, with a normal ALKFOS, I would think one thing. If it was mostly an ALKFOS with normal transaminases, I would think another thing. And yet this is kind of the mid-ground, right? Yeah. So, 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 I've got, so I've got both elevated transaminases, you know, elevated AST and ALT and an elevated ALKFOS. And, and does that make me think of, of, of something else? So, so I'll put that to the side. And then I have to ask this. And, and, and so, you know, I just take my eraser out and I would erase so much of this stuff. And I say, give me those original vitals. Give me the D-dimer was, give me the history, but, but give me the original vitals. Give me the D-dimer and give me the chest X-ray and erase everything else. And, 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 and where would that, where would that lead? What would that lead me to think? Right. So these are just two little pieces that I, that I throw out there. I, I don't know if you guys want to comment. I don't know, Kevin, if you want to comment on this, I, I just, I just have to see it every time. Now I, I look at liver function tests and I, and I say, well, you know, and I'll say it myself, if it, if it, if the ALT and ST are elevated, it's hepatitis. If the ALKFOS is elevated, it's obstructive, but what if they're both elevated? What am I supposed to think? So you can definitely have a mixed picture, but I think Kate was already alluding to this by asking for a GGT because that could give us more clues as to where the alkfos is coming from. And if, if I remember correctly, alkfos can come from the bone, it can come from the biliary system or the placenta. So a GGT can at least tell us it's coming from the liver. 
Um, and, and then, then one, one thing, oh, sorry, go ahead. I just wanted no, to- No, go, go, please, please. No, just to answer Dr. Ramza, what you said, I, it's funny that, that you say the eraser thing because I feel like we can look at data and kind of look at it from any lens we want and, and have confirmation bias and, and argue whatever we want. <laughs> so I agree. If you look at the vitals, her history of malignancy, she's tachycardic with shortness of breath with a high D dimer <laughs> that screams PE, right? Like, so you need to do like, like a CT angio uh, to rule out a PE. Yeah, I agree that the other things being involved cloud the picture but again PEs are very sneaky she does have the history of malignancy mm-hmm. um tachycardic and shortness of breath that's new competitions now is kind of scary if it is truly mm-hmm. PE, i yeah that's that's the I, I think it's a really good point that i didn't think about um mm-hmm. should definitely see if she has a pe <laughs> <laughs> all right let's go to l quad five we did a lower extremity doppler and it was negative for dvt she did have a ct angio that showed no evidence of pulmonary embolism and then as part of the workup for the hepatomegaly, they also checked the CT abdomen pelvis, which showed numerous hypodense hepatic lesions, in addition to mixed lytic and sclerotic lesions along the pelvis and multiple thoracic and lumbar vertebra. Okay. So glad we rolled out a PE. Definitely should have uh, considered that earlier. Her CT abdomen pelvis, as well as with all the hypodense, can't read this, hepatic lesions, and then the lesions in her bones makes me still think malignancy, some sort of metastatic malignancy here. I don't know what the origin of it would be, but yeah, no, I still think malignancy is at the top of my differential, just given the imaging here. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think Kate said it perfectly. I, I, I totally agree. And I just looking back at like the four aliquots we have right now and which things and pieces of information we have are, are justified by, by what we just saw. So like, we're assuming there's definitely, I mean, with this story where I think the first thing we're thinking about, like Kate said, is, is metastatic cancer from somewhere. Uh, for now, I don't think we can assume that it's, that it's breast, although that's pretty likely. Uh, but just if we say metastatic cancer from somewhere, the, the lesions in the liver would explain the, the elevated ALT and AST and potentially the alphas being explained by the, the meds to the bone. Mm-hmm. Um, the tachycardia, I don't like that it's still not explained very much um the hypercalcemia is is explained the elevated d-dimer is explained for me maybe the shortness sorry go ahead oh i was gonna say i think one thing for me that's unexplained is i guess just how quickly this happened so you know she was short of breath for a couple days and then over the course of one day started having palpitations and then uh and her labs were all normal a month ago and now they're you know fairly abnormal. I just feel like I have a hard time thinking about how she has all these lesions everywhere and everything was normal a month ago. Like this is a, I mean, it must, maybe it's just a really aggressive cancer. Hard to say. Yeah. I think you bring up a really good point the, 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 the time course doesn't help us here. Also the fact that Kevin said that it's a very unique case. I don't think metastatic <laughs> cancer in itself uh, would be something for, worthy of, of, uh, of a podcast. So I think there's something else sneaky going on here. But yeah, for me, the, the one thing, sorry, I'm just going to say this real quick. The one thing that I don't like so far yet is, is the, is the heart rate. We said that like, it's all of our favorites, um, vital sign except Kate's, but, uh, yeah, the heart rate, I, I don't <laughs> like that. It's 110. Um, I don't like that. It's 110, and still the palpitations also don't like that. It's still not explained by the picture we have so far. I think most things, are explained by, by aliquot number five, but, but definitely not it. Did we ever get like an idea of what, like what she means when she says palpitations? I can't remember now. Was that, was that given to us? Like, just like hearts pounding, like what were her palpitations? Also, we like, they haven't shown up anywhere either. So I don't know if it's just anxiety. I, I, I think as best as I remember, she felt that her heart, heart was racing. Okay. 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 And then just as a teaching point, it, on the left side, is that her spleen? Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. Yeah. So for those listening, we we have a, an image of the CT abdomen pelvis, and it's really showing the hepatomegaly. It's showing splenomegaly, and then just diffusely hypodense lesions throughout both the the liver and spleen. And, and the, I think there's one on the on the vertebra here. Yeah, also. you can see that. Yeah, one of the lesions in the vertebra as well. Okay. You know, we're, we're progressing in this case. You're starting to tie things into the buckets of differentials you've brought up and 
you're finding explanations for some of the things, but we're still left with some questions. As our workup continues, what are you guys aiming to do next? I think for me, I'd still want to get a bilirubin uh, fractionated and I'd still want to get a PTH. Um, the, the reason why I say that is because I, I don't want to fall in the trap of, of seeing the calcium. We have the CT scan and we just say, oh yeah, that's automatically um, the, the METs. I think we need to make sure that it, is it PTH independent or not? Because there could be something else going on with, with the pituitary. And then the other thing that, that I'd love to know is just maybe for just choice of treatment and, and do we need to do anything acute um, is, is there truly an obstruction? I mean, the, the alpha is incredibly high. The, the ALT and the AST could be explained just by the meds. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to know what her bilirubin is as well. For ease of mind, it's PTH independent. Okay. And then Dr. Abrams, do you by chance remember? Not jaundice. I can, I, only, I okay. can tell you no, no jaundice. Okay. Hmm. So if that, yeah, it's, I forget that, you know, sometimes we can have a physical exam clue to help us with labs and jaundice is one of them. So at least we know her bilirubin's not severely elevated right. and we'll leave it at that. And so now that you have those, uh, and factoring them in, what are the next steps? I mean, I would at some point maybe like to biopsy one of these lesions and see what it looks like. Okay. So tissues, the issue for you, Kate. I mean, I think at some point, unless we can come up with a reason why her abdomen looks like this without biopsying it, I mean, I think that we'll have to kind of see what's, what, we're lo- what we're looking at. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. The, 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 the PTH independent piece, I think, is helpful because then we can pr- confident, not pretty good, but I would say confidently say that it's um, malignancy um, mediated, the, the hypercalcemia. I agree with you, though. I think the next step would be to, to, to get a biopsy. And Dan, I think your point is really well said here because it, it, and not surprisingly, we're really starting to anchor in this case, right? Mm -hmm. But, but, but there are, and you've mentioned them there, you know, there are other causes of this potentially. And, uh, you know, so, so, and we can't, we can't discount that. And as, as, as you guys both say, I think ultimately, ultimately there's a, this person needs a diagnostic test. And in this case, it it has to be a biopsy, you know, what, what your biopsy, my answer is is always your biopsy, the the thing that's easiest to get to, that's going to, that, that you think is going to give your, give your highest yield, but you have to, you know, you're going to have to get tissue because, and it goes back to what Kate said, malignant, infectious, whatever, this thing is sort of galloping, Right. Right. It, it it's galloped it, it's galloped a lot the last month and then just as, a, as like just something that you know this reminds me of what you just what you just said like that it's galloping is with the with the lytic lesions on on the especially the, the spinal column i just want to get a good msk exam to make sure there's no compression um because that's i think one thing that will like put a pause on the on the thinking and then we need to start doing stuff so yeah amazing that's just point a, dan yeah that's something that we would need to know acutely to be able to address acutely. So I'm, I'm glad you said that. All right. We're going to go on to aliquot six and it's a rather rich aliquot. So the patient underwent IR guided liver biopsy and magically we got the path back right away and it showed poorly differentiated carcinoma thought to be metastasis from primary breast cancer. We have that aside. Patient's still in the hospital. She demonstrated platypnea and orthodoxia. She was progressively hypoxic while ambulating, requiring up to five liters of supplemental oxygen. So we almost have two, two kind of things happening. We have the, right. the biopsy and path in the background. And then, you know, while, while the investigation and analysis of that was underway, <laughs> we have a little bit more to add to her respiratory status. Although Dan, it does answer one of your questions. And that is she was able to get up and walk. Right. Yeah. The, I think you said it perfectly. I think it is. It is a rich one. I mean, yeah, platypnea is not something we see an awful lot. So uh, the, the way I'll approach this, and Kate, obviously feel free to, to interrupt and, and, and chime in because I'm just thinking out loud now. I, my gut feeling tells me that there's something else going on that we, we don't know yet. And, and I think the first paragraph, um, you know, resolutes one part of the equation. Yeah. Okay. She has primary breast cancer and it's metastatic, but either, so the platypnea, um, which essentially is, is, you know, shortness of breath relieved by like 
laying down, which is the opposite, I think, of orthopnea, right? So mm -hmm. um, that's not very common. Um, I, I think maybe I've seen it once. I, again, if I'm speaking like I have 20 years of experience. I only have one year. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think I've maybe seen it once in, in M3 year. Um, I don't think I've seen it at all this year, which for now makes me think there is something, my gut feeling sounds like mechanical. There's a mechanical obstruction that is dynamic uh, that's causing the platypnea and the shortness of breath. So for now, all I can say is, is dynamic mechanical obstruction. The, and the dynamic part is, is it changes with, with um, positioning. So just thinking out loud, I'm thinking, is there like, I don't know, we, we, you know, we think of like the, the myxomas um, and, and masses in the heart that can you know, cause mitral valve obstruction, that can move with, with distance, with, I mean, with, with, with positioning. But then again, her having two primary cancers occurring at the same time would be like lightning striking twice. Yeah, I mean, I I think we maybe thought, well, we think we saw platypnea and orthodeoxia uh, once this year. And I cannot remember for the life of me what the patient had. I want to say like hepatopulmonary syndrome, but I cannot remember. So I don't know. I guess I agree with Daniel. Like maybe something mechanical is going on. Um, yeah, I, I, I really like the hepatopulmonary. Um, I, I think it brings a good point because of something we were talking about, um, I think in the first or second aliquot, the, the, we could, the fact that her liver edge was palpable makes us think hepatomegaly, which is, is the shortness of breath due to truly a mechanical obstruction, I mean, mechanical pushing of the liver being enlarged against the diaphragm and it's causing the sensation of shortness of breath. And that would change with positioning. Yeah, that's, I think you bring up a good point, Kate. I got the goosebumps. I'm not even kidding. That that has been my favorite discussion for an aliquot yet. And I love physiology and how you guys just dissected that. Dan mentioning one, what platypnea is, and then trying to frame what could cause that and recognizing that it's a dynamic process. I, that was incredible. And then Kate trying to recall and connect the two on a patient she saw and then you both are recognizing that those, just those words stick out and they're unusual and you're drawn to them. And I think we like to do that because we haven't gotten into it yet, but these are things we don't see often and they probably have a very specific differential diagnosis. And I think, it is, I think it's important to, 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 to talk about these two terms for a second. Um, it, it, before we even do that, I, 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 again, you guys are so smart. It's it, it, it's pretty <laughs> incredible, um, and 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 I think this concept that this is a dynamic process is you know is it is kind of cool and it is sort of physiology. So so the platypnea is 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 just as I think as Dan said, which is you know we we I do think it's the opposite of orthopnea. We we you know we we live in the world of orthopnea in the hospital all the time. And yet something like this comes up and it's like, Oh, this is so strange. It, it's, it shortens a breath when, when uh, it's it shortness of breath when, when you're sitting up as opposed to when you're lying down. What about this other term, this orthodeoxia? Is it, I think it's you desat. So your, you, your oxygen, your oxygen goes down when you're upright. That's and it's so. So one is the sen, one is almost sort of the sensation, and one is the is the uh, you Numbers. know the objective measure. Objective measure. Yeah. So one's the objective measure. So you know people could feel a certain way and everything could be fine, and and yet the fact that that there is this orthodeoxia really makes it more meaningful, and again I think sort of throws it back exactly where you guys were. We're talking just just before this, which is which is totally cool, and 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 I'm amazed by by your ability to pick that up. We got good educators at Rush Medical College. For anyone who's <laughs> not from here. <laughs> All right, guys, I am so impressed. We're we're not quite at the end yet. We have another aliquot of information. I'm just going to give it to you guys, actually. So, a TTE was done with a bubble study that was revealing for a right to left intrapulmonary shunt. There was then some later review of that CT chest that was done earlier that showed 
no evidence of uh, AV malformation. So the, the next aliquot will reveal the final diagnosis. Need a second to think about that one. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Why don't you just share your thought process out loud too? Because I think that'll actually be really helpful because this so, is a specific study and I knew absolutely nothing about why this would be done heading into this. The TTE? Yeah, the TTE. Mm -hmm. sorry. Yeah, so the TTE with bubble, I feel like I've only ever seen it really used when looking for like a PFO or like yeah, an ASTE or something like that. But the right to left intrapulmonary shunt being found on it does explain her O2 sat, the 89%, as well as the fact that she needs five liters of oxygen while ambulating. Yeah, I I was actually thinking about the similar thing. I think the only bubble study I've, I've yeah, that I knew was um, a PFO, so like the, you know, the interatrial shunt rather than the, or intrapulmonary shunt. Yeah, so think about like a right to left intrapulmonary shunt. I agree would would cause the the desat like kate said it would explain it would also explain the shortness of breath mm -hmm. the thing that i'm being hung up on is is why does she have it right I, I think we i think it's good that you know it explains her symptoms it can even explain with the fact that we we know the metastatic um diagnosis for now explains almost every piece of information we have the question is why and i think the, the easy thing would be to say well it's I met, you know, it's malignancy and it's a met and, and it causes a shunt, which is probably, like you said, Kevin, um, common things being common cancer does that. I mean, cancer is weird and it's, it's, and it's unfortunately amazing at the same time. So yeah, agreed. I, yeah, that, that, that's me thinking out loud right now. I fear that there's a more exciting thing that, that, that it, we're not explaining, but I like just thinking out loud again, going back to what Kate said, I like the idea of hepatopulmonary. Um, at maybe not explaining the whole picture, but at least being a contributing factor with the fact that we have the elevated liver enzymes with the platypnea, hepatopulmonary is, is, I think is, is at least covers a lot of the things we, we, we've seen. Yeah. Any final thoughts, Kate? No, I think I agree with Daniel. I feel like, yeah, we've explained, we, we, what we, the information we have is explained a lot, pretty much everything else that we've talked about earlier. Just the why is why is this happening to her? Yeah. You guys ready for the final diagnosis? Let's do it. Yep. So there was no wow. AV malformations on the CT chest. The echo findings wow. were felt to be the result of the pedal pulmonary syndrome, secondary to her widespread vascular hepatic metastases. Poor Incredible, guys. Incredible. Wow. Like in her 30s, that's, that's absolutely crazy. Yeah, I mean, just... Terribly sad case yeah. one, and it's it's good to. I'm glad you mentioned that. It's good to remember that, but also just but physiologically fantastic very... discussion. Physiologically, so incredible. Uh, and what's more incredible is your recognition of that and how you guys talked about it. I mean, you got there, and in reality, we don't always know the final answer, and you were questioning even at the end was maybe some other zebra type thing was happening, causing the hepatopulmonary, but no, it was the, all the vascular metastases that presented this or caused this acute hepatopulmonary syndrome. So I'll go through some teaching points in a second, but I just want to see if you guys have any final reflections. I mean, it's just for a curiosity. I, I don't really know how to approach treating that. I mean, with the, you know, her, case being incredibly advanced like that I, I think her prognosis is probably extremely poor um and just such terrible bad luck for how young she is and having had it already so yeah i don't have really anything to add so kevin why don't you go through what you want to say i i know at least some of the follow-up um, okay and again you know everything you guys have said is 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 right let's 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 leave it at that i mean this was a, a it, clearly this was a a malignancy that just sort of blew out, right? I mean, it was it was a month for God's sakes, and and it was a month with a, you know, with with a previous with a previous malignancy that was thought to be totally and completely yeah. cured or dormant for God's sakes. And so, she had regular follow up too. It sounded she like was, she was following, yeah. following, 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 and then boom! All of a sudden, within within weeks, she goes from you know, and I remember she. she 
a lot of this was because you know, she was like an avid exercise person. And, you know, over the space of a week, all of a sudden she couldn't exercise anymore. Wow. I'm actually so, curious. I mean, I'm mildly surprised she's not febrile. I mean, I've seen a few patients that like with such like widespread metastasis, like IL-6 mediated, you know, fever is like so common. Um, especially that it's involving almost every organ for her, but it's good that she wasn't febrile because then we would have gone down the infectious route and we would have completely got it wrong. So (laughs) (laughs) good reflection, Dan, and we'll cover some, some stuff about hepatopulmonary syndrome. So it's, it's a pulmonary disorder of chronic liver disease. That's characterized by a triad, one being chronic liver disease, two being pulmonary vascular dilation, and then three being a gas exchange abnormality. And then particularly on the gas exchange abnormality component, there's been a bunch of differing diagnostic criteria. So the the prevalence of hepatopulmonary syndrome widely varies, and it's been suggested to be about 4% to 47% of patients with cirrhosis have HPS. And I I had to go and do a dive on the pathophys behind this because I think it's just fascinating. And there's really three big components to it. And it's one intrapulmonary capillary vasodilation. So the, the expanding of the vessels leads to impaired atrial or arterial oxygenation and causes a VQ mismatch. Mm. So why the mismatch? It's the dilated vessels. There's, there's absent tone. Um, that's a part of the chronic liver disease, which leads to increased flow. There's longer distances for oxygen molecules to cross. And that's coupled with then over perfusion of the alveoli with decreased RBC transit time. And that causes an increased AA gradient. I think that Mm. just the combination of those things is fascinating. And then what we learned in our case was there's also evidence of intrapulmonary arteriovenous shunting, which causes the mixed blood to pass through pleura and pulmonary communications. And it's actually thought that the higher presence in the lower lung zones may be behind the mechanism of orthodeoxia. So the the Mm. pulmonary vasodilation is really due to an imbalance of vasodilators and constrictors. And for, for many different reasons, but for just to kind of recap two of them, the chronic liver disease leads to impre- increased production of nitric oxide and carbon monoxide. And then as part of this chronic liver disease, there's a massive accumulation of intravascular macrophages, mm-hmm. which are TNF alpha producing. And all of these in combination contribute to the vascular dilation. And then more downstream things happen in TNF alpha stimulates the VEGF pathway and then there's actual neoangiogenesis that's occurring on top of this. So the clinical features of HPS, number one, is a progressive dyspnea. And then there's the two very specific uh, findings of platypnea and then the objective orthodeoxia, which just to define it, it's an arterial sat that drops in at least 5% or 4 millimeters of mercury when moving from supine to upright. And then in these patients, you can often find stigmata of cirrhosis. So jaundice ascites, pulmonary erythema. It's actually thought that the spider angiomas are tied in with this pulmonary vasodilation phenomenon that occurs. And then the digital clubbing as a result of the uh, lung involvement. So for diagnosis, you need to meet the triad. And that's evidence of liver disease or portal hypertension. An AA gradient greater than or equal to 15, which you check by an ABG and then evidence of pulmonary vascular dilations. And this is where that contrast enhanced TTE comes in. And it's particularly the agitated saline component. And I had to do some reading about why that would be. And it really relates to, there's all these micro bubbles from the agitated saline and you're injecting it into the, the venous system. And then a certain amount of time passes in a normal individual without pulmonary vasodilation the bubbles won't be able to pass. They get stuck in the capillaries. But if this, if in hepatopulmonary syndrome, the vessels are dilated and allow for the passing of the micro bubbles, which then reach the left heart and show up as opacification on the echo. So that's like the hallmark sign that there's pulmonary vasodilation. And then Dan, you, you are wondering what is, what do you do for this? And unfortunately there's really no medical management for this. There's actually only one surgical thing and that's liver transplant. Just to lead up to that, there's no correlation actually in the presence or severity of HPS 
related to the extent of liver disease. And this is often a very, the mortality uh, associated with this phenomenon is, is actually very high, about 12% with the median survival and those that develop HPS less than 12 months. And then liver transplants, the only definitive treatment. And interestingly, patients will have a marked improvement, if not resolution of their syndromes in about 85% after transplant. I, I had, I was wondering if we had time for a few questions. I had a few yeah, questions. Absolutely. Um, Kevin, not not to put you on the spot, just things that I think were very interesting. The first one is, I mean, I think you did a really beautiful job just explaining um, the ideology and the pathophysiology. The the one thing that I'm maybe still not fully, I guess, satisfied makes me sound demanding, but satisfied with (laughs) is the the shunting specifically. I mean, what exactly is causing the shunting? Is it the, the neoangiogenesis between the two systems? Or is it is it just the incredible vasodilation? That's the first question I have. And the second one, that's just a curiosity question, is the bubble study. If 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 someone is normal and they don't have the vasodilation, how does this not cause a pee? For the bubble study, isn't it that like it's just was oh, it oxygen, oxygen, and so it just eventually gets absorbed and it's fine. I, I think you're right. I think it's I, don't, it's I think it's just agitated saline for the most part, and, okay. and so it's so it, it it's it, it's not like lipid or something. It, you think of things like that. So I think this stuff is 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 essentially relatively quickly, but not but okay. not quickly enough that if it doesn't get obstructed, you you don't see this stuff all rush back to the heart quickly. Mm. So it's so it, it's not that it never gets back to the heart. It just it's just slow getting back to the heart or slower getting back to the heart. The other thing, you know, and and I do think I mean, you guys were so good because this really is a tough case, and and the reality is 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 the reporting of this case in in metastatic cancer is super 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 rare, and so so when we say here's the mechanism for this, it's well you know if there's a handful of cases that occur in this setting, we don't know the mechanism for this. We have some idea of mechanisms in the more common causes of this, and it and it's a relative in the more common causes which are relatively uncommon. The, I, and I don't have any answers. I, I, I have, I've walked away from this case with all sorts of speculations myself. And that is, was all this, was all the shunting actually intrapulmonary was some of the shunting intrahepatic actually. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, sort of, as you said, you know, this is such a, it was so dynamic. It's, you know, you didn't, you, you, you sort of couldn't believe that you could, that you could see this happen. Just like you say, her O2 sat when she was lying down would be great. And then she'd get up and, and walk two feet and then her O2 sats would drop. Even just sitting up, her O2 sats would drop down. And so, so it's, you know, coming up with, with great pathophysiologic explanations for this, I, you know, are, are, are hard to do. I, I, I do have to say one sort of quick thing about sort of the end game with this. So, so, you know, so so the treatment for this in this case was chemotherapy, obviously, and uh, and, and and actually initially I know she got her sort of first course of chemotherapy and 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 actually did okay, um, but 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 relatively quickly this was a super aggressive tumor that sort of you know came back with a vengeance even 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 you know shortly after that. And, and I know that, that the, the patient expired within a relatively short period of time. So she, she responded, so she responded a little bit and then, and then she became refractory and, and sort of quickly, you know, went, went, you know, got worse and, and ultimately expired. So a really difficult, I think, unusual case, certainly, you know, from the patient standpoint, um, a, really kind of a tragedy in many ways. Um, but I, I'm just, I'm so blown away that you guys, that, that, that you guys went down the path and, and, and really sort of came up with, with, with what, you know, is our best guess at what the right answer was. Yeah. Fantastic job guys. And I, I want to give Daniel some closure on his, his question he asked earlier with just trying to understand the the shunting more. And from my understanding, I'm going to, I'm going to have to go back as, as well and read about this more because it is complex, but 
I, I think it's the vascular dilation that is most responsible. And I think it's helpful to actually know how much dilation is occurring. So the normal vasculature is about eight to 15 micrometers. And then in hepatopulmonary syndrome, it can reach and exceed a hundred micrometers. So oh, wow. Wow. about 10 times greater diameter. And I think that I think those facilitates bubbles are eight, the bubbles are eight to 10. Is that, I think that the, the agitated <laughs> yeah. is not that size. That makes sense. And so really it's the, the dilation that allows the shunt to facilitate the blood to go into the pulmonary veins. Mm. For my understanding, I'm, I'm sure it's, you know, multifactorial, but great question. No, those and are great explanation. Thanks, Kevin. Guys, thanks for coming on. I'm thanks so glad, glad that you guys were game to discuss this case and, I think we had some fantastic discussion. And again, as I'm sure all the listeners will be, we're both incredibly impressed with your reasoning and I hope you guys had fun. It, it was really fun. Great. Thanks Dr. Abraham and, and Kevin for the, for the great teaching points. Also. Yes. Thank you so much. Also, I can't believe we got it kind of. <laughs> you got it. No, once you, <laughs> you said it, I was, like, I was like, okay. I think we both looked at each other like, okay, now I've heard it. Thanks again for listening. Person, time and place. We'll see you next time.